Welcome to the Supervisory Development Course Podcast from the University of Minnesota. This episode is adapted from a webinar that aired on May 23rd, 2017. The podcast discusses managing conflict in the context of the University of Minnesota. For more information and resources, visit supervising.umn.edu and explore Module 3 on Managing Conflict. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Amanda Wolford, a consultant from Leadership and Talent Development in the Office of Human Resources. So I'd like to welcome you to today's session of Managing Conflict. I'll be co-presenting with Brandon Sullivan, the Senior Director of Leadership and Talent Development. I also want to remind you how we develop the material that's in the course. So everything that you find in the course is based on what research and leading practices say about what works in managing conflict. And I'm certain you have seen trainings or resources on conflict many times before. So this information should be familiar. However, it's what you do with it and the impact it makes that matters. And keep in mind that conflict is a fluid and dynamic process and every situation is different. So next we're gonna walk through a conflict example so you can see how conflict management- Hold, hold on, Amanda. You have an earlier version of the slides. We decided yesterday to start by busting some common myths about conflict, do you remember that? Oh, um, I didn't know you changed that up. I thought we decided to start with an example of conflict. I'm sorry, Amanda. I just think there are so many myths about conflict. We should start there. I'm the senior director after all, so let's do it this way. Okay, uh, I guess you're the boss, but you're being kind of a jerk about it. You know, I'm getting really sick of your bad attitude. Maybe if you'd paid more attention when we did the dry run yesterday, this wouldn't have happened. Well, maybe if you'd paid any attention to any of my ideas, we wouldn't be screwing up this webinar in front of 300 people. Amanda, remind me again, which one of us has a PhD? And that matters, why? Uh, just a reminder, we're still live. Oh, sorry. sorry. Oh, sorry. Okay, everyone just calm down, it's fine. Just to be clear, that was not a real argument. We were demonstrating how easy it is for a simple disagreement about work to spill over into personal conflict and turn into disrespectful behavior. We're gonna spend the rest of our time today looking at sources of conflict, how to unpack it, and ultimately seek solutions all in a productive way. And we actually play that up a little bit for dramatic effect, but that's certainly not a good way to approach conflict. What Brandon did there was offered a zero sum approach. I'm the senior director, so we're gonna do it my way. So let's face it, conflict can be uncomfortable at times. It might make you feel anxious, like you failed or can't solve a problem, and you might want to avoid the conflict altogether, but generally that does not help the situation. Brandon and I are going to spend the rest of this time with you, not arguing, but giving you tips on conflict sources and skills to tackle them. So instead of blaming and undermining and all the ugly things that come along with conflict, there's definitely a better way to manage it. When Brandon could have done is better manage his emotions and communicated with me ahead of time and then had my agreement before we went live. And I didn't have to take the bait per se and react like I did and call him a jerk. So if you were Brandon's supervisor, what would your role be in this conflict? What would you do to address the conflict? You'd likely need to give him feedback and coaching on the situation and set the performance expectation that he be more respectful to the members of the team. And keep in mind that toxic behavior that is tolerated in the workplace unfortunately sets the tone for the culture and that can really backfire. Conflict is actually very healthy and normal in the workplace. 
and I did say it was healthy and normal. But when it becomes personal and emotional, that's not healthy. When managed effectively, conflict can actually benefit us by opening our eyes to new ideas and building more effective teams by fostering trust, improving relationships, and renewing confidence in a team's ability to work together. Self-awareness also in the fact that conflict forces us to examine our own goals and expectations more closely, which helps us see the things that are most important, not only to ourselves, but to other people as well. And speaking of self-awareness, it's the first step in the ready, set, go framework of managing conflict. The rest of this webinar will focus on this framework. And up first is getting ready or looking inward and assessing how we view conflict, which defines how we handle the conflict. So the practices and examples we'll share are designed to be useful across many types of work. As you learn the material presented today, think about the people you supervise and consider the nature of the work they do along with their individual needs. As mentioned before, a lot of this information may not be new, but it's how you apply it and the impact it will have. And most importantly, apply your judgment about what will work for the people you supervise. This is a critical ingredient for effective conflict management. Also with conflict, most people fall into the category of either being a conflict avoider or a conflict seeker. So think about your tendencies when it comes to conflict. Are you an avoider or a seeker or both? Conflict seekers generally value directness and honesty over harmony and relationships and avoiders value the opposite. They want the harmony. If you answered both, that's very natural to sometimes seek and sometimes avoid. You might be more of a seeker with those closest to you, like family, your spouse, etc., or more of an avoider in other situations. Neither approach is better or worse, but it's important to know your tendency and go from there. After all, it's about having the self-awareness of yourself and the others involved. And being aware of how you work with others to achieve results is just as important as achieving the results. So what are your strengths and development needs when it comes to conflict? Do you listen to understand another person or do you wait for your turn to make a point? There's an interactive self-assessment available in the Get Ready section of the Managing Conflict module that will help you evaluate your behaviors and development needs. The assessment scores will help you increase your self-awareness and focus on the areas that you want to improve as it relates to conflict management. And so once you know how you come across and which conflict skills you need to work on, it's important to take a closer look at the conflict situation itself. And this is the get set piece of the framework. So before continuing, let's take a moment for our first poll. So the poll question is, we want to know what the most recent conflict you've experienced or witnessed at work. And you can only select one. So your choices are, Differing ideas about what work will be done. Differing ideas about how to get the work done. Differing ideas about who is in charge or deserves credit. Or interpersonal conflict involving anger and hurt feelings. So the poll is now closed. And so it looks like a lot of you are saying differing ideas about how to get the work done. And then a close second would be interpersonal conflict. So those are pretty common in the workplace. So I wanna talk about the differing ideas of how to get the work done. And that's what is called process conflict. 
So we're going to dive into those next. But so perhaps you were thinking about you know, how the work gets done and in the process of doing so, you're coming up on a disagreement. And then those of you who answered the part about the hurt, anger, or the hurt, anger, and feelings, excuse me, um, that is interpersonal conflict, and that is actually what's called relationship. So we'll talk more about these conflict sources, as you can see on your screen. There are four different types. So conflict at work can stem from one or more of these sources. And so it's important to understand the root cause of a conflict. It'll help you figure out how to manage it more effectively, which may lead to solutions that resolve the conflict. So with a task conflict, that's differing ideas about what work will be done. So plans, ideas, projects, or goals. And with process, so a lot of you said that recently you witnessed a conflict around process, differing ideas about how to get the work done. So that includes methods for making decisions and the steps in people getting involved and getting things done. And with status, it's differing ideas about who is in charge or deserves credit for the work. And then with relationship, that's interpersonal conflict. And so generally that's what we see on the surface is the relationship conflict. But when you start to dig deeper, you can actually figure out that it might be about task or process. So I'm not going to spend time going through each one of these because we actually wanna spend the rest of the webinar teaching you some of the skills that will help you manage these sources of conflict. We do actually have a lot of quick guides on these four sources that you can download from the Managing Conflict module after this webinar. So back to the argument, air quotes, that Brandon and I had at the beginning of this webinar. It probably came across as relationship conflict because in that moment, that's what it was. Brandon was undermining me and he was throwing his weight around. You could also say it was a status conflict who is the director and has a PhD and who doesn't? But getting to the root cause of him wanting to talk about conflict myths before we talked about conflict sources would signify a process conflict or how the work was to get done and the decision-making around it. So oftentimes conflict needs to be unpacked as it can be a very dynamic and fluid process and there are certain skills you can enhance to help you through it. And Brandon will talk about those skills in just a moment but before he does that, you'll wanna keep in mind that most conflicts don't fit nicely into just one type. There's often layers. So that's an iceberg image, if you were wondering. An example of a layer would be a task conflict that has worsened over time and now includes relationship conflict. Conflict may be uncomfortable, but it can be productive and it is a part of life. And the key to understanding the root cause of the conflict and having a plan to manage it effectively. Finally, as a supervisor, many of the conflicts that you have to deal with involve members of your team or department and may not directly involve you. So in those cases, instead of applying the skills yourself, your job may be to provide feedback and coaching to others so that they can learn and apply these skills. So to introduce the section on conflict skills, we're gonna take another poll. So go ahead and place your answer on the right side of your screen. And the question is, what is the most challenging part in managing conflict for you? Is it knowing when to get involved as a supervisor? Is it managing emotions? Is it building trust or seeking solutions? So the most challenging part, go ahead and select one and then make sure that you click submit at the bottom of the poll. 
Okay, the results are in. And it's not surprising that a lot of you chose managing emotions because we're all human and we have emotions. And so that's definitely something that can bubble to the top and needs to be addressed first. And then you can dig deeper into the other skills. So the majority of you said be managing emotions. And then the second top answer was knowing when to get involved. So that's a really great question too. So we're gonna talk about that and I'm actually gonna turn it over to Brandon is going to tell you about the skills. All right. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, so let's talk about knowing when to get involved as a supervisor. Uh, so as a supervisor, uh, when you're aware of a conflict that involves members of your team or department, you may need to get involved, even if that conflict doesn't directly involve you, at least at the beginning. Uh, so it's critical to get involved when the conflict makes it hard for you or others in your department to do their work. So you might consider, does the conflict affect performance and productivity? If you know that it is, or you think it might, then it's really important for you to get involved. Is the conflict disruptive? Does someone feel disrespected? Is the conflict causing someone who is performing well to consider finding another job to get away from it? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, or you're worried that it's yes, then it's definitely your role to get involved. The other thing is, does someone be, someone's behavior fail to meet expectations for how they are to get the work done? Uh, if so, then you'll need to address this behavior as a supervisor. Uh, so your role in con managing conflict involves providing clear expectations for how people on your team work with others. You also need to address behavior that fails to meet these expectations. And you can do this as part of ongoing check-ins. For example, if two people in your department are being disrespectful to each other and calling each other names, then you would reiterate the expectation that they show respect for each other at all times while at work. Then as you have ongoing check-ins to discuss performance and development, you would talk about how they are doing and address any instances where they are being disrespectful. In a case like this, you would use skills related to managing performance. And we covered managing uh, performance skills in the managing and evaluating performance module of this course that launched in April. Uh, and you can access all of that on the supervising.umn.edu website. In addition to setting expectations and addressing performance issues, your role also involves providing feedback to help the people reporting to you to be aware of any problematic behavior and the impact it has on others, and coach them on how to approach a conflict situation productively. In the example of two people on your team being disrespectful to each other, you would provide feedback on specific instances of disrespectful behavior, focusing on what the situation was, the specific behavior that you saw, and the impact that behavior had on others on the team. Then you would coach them on what to do differently in the future. And we covered feedback and coaching skills uh, in module one of this course, which launched in February. So you can see uh, all the tools and resources for that on the supervising.umn.edu website. Uh, before we dive into the rest of the skills, just a quick note, uh, you'll be using these skills yourself. And as a supervisor, you'll also be coaching others to use these skills. And keep in mind that helping others to improve their conflict management skills is a really good way to ensure that members of your team or department can work out many of their disagreements without even needing you to get involved. The next step in managing conflict is to manage emotions, which is really about staying calm and helping others keep their anger and frustration in check. When you're dealing with conflict, it's not uncommon to feel angry, anxious, or frustrated. For example, you may be trying hard to listen to another person and let them know that you value your relationship with them, yet they continue to blame you, make accusations, or maybe even call you names. In this case, even the most 
even-keeled person is going to feel frustrated. The problem is that anger and frustration make it very difficult to focus on the problem in a productive way. When we react out of anger, we're likely to say and do things that make the conflict worse and make it more likely the others involved will also react out of anger. Emotions are contagious, especially those of a supervisor. If you act angry or frustrated, the people on your team are going to get angry and frustrated too. So as a supervisor, when you are able to stay calm and rational, the people on your team will also be better able to stay calm and rational. A simple but powerful technique to keep anger and frustration in check is to pause and take a time out before responding to something that has provoked you. Take a deep breath or two, go for a walk, spend a few minutes venting to someone you trust who can help you calm down, or sleep on it and respond a day or two later. This technique can be especially helpful when a conflict catches you by surprise. For example, if you are presenting your ideas at a meeting and someone surprises you with a bunch of criticism and challenging questions, you might be tempted to respond with anger. Instead of blurting out whatever pops into your mind, which is likely to be filled with negative emotion, this would be a good time to pause, take a deep breath, and consider how to respond. Or if you can bring yourself to do it, maybe even thank the person for their thoughts and say that it'll get back to them later with your response. Remember when Amanda and I got into an argument at the beginning of the webinar? Neither one of us paused to, or took a deep breath before responding. Had one of us done this, Maybe I wouldn't have made a snarky comment about her bad attitude, and maybe Amanda wouldn't have called me a jerk in front of a few hundred people. In fact, even if this had been real, I could have avoided the whole conflict by saying something like, sorry for changing things up at the last minute. Here, why don't you use my copy of the slides? We're on slide six. It might have been a bit embarrassing for us to say this in front of a live audience, but we could have quickly moved past the conflict. Emotions can escalate fast, and pausing before speaking can save you a lot of grief and additional conflict. When you need to pause and take a deep breath, follow a three-step process to focus your mind and give yourself time to calm down so you can respond productively. First, be aware of yourself and consider, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What is your body posture? Notice if your heart is pounding. In that moment, try to consciously reduce your energy level. Take a deep breath, notice if your muscles are tense, and try to relax them. Second, be aware of what is around you. Notice what is in the room, what sounds do you hear? Who are the people around you? And then third, look at the person in front of you. What is their facial expression, their tone of voice? What is their body posture? These three steps help you focus on yourself, your surroundings, and the other people in the room. This may only take a couple of seconds, but you will find that you have calmed down enough to respond more productively if you do this. It's also important to know that people differ in how quickly they get angry, how intense these feelings are, and how long these feelings last. If you are someone whose emotions are quick to appear and they can be pretty strong, then this technique will be especially helpful. And if you're coaching someone like this, helping them to manage their emotions is an important step. A note about email. It's often tempting to vent frustration through email. There's usually no harm in merely writing such an email, but sending it is often a mistake and makes the conflict worse and fails to resolve anything. If you're tempted to write an email, leave it in your drafts mailbox for a day or two, then come back to it and reread it or have a colleague provide feedback. Consider very carefully how the recipient is likely to respond. You might think about if you were to receive the email you just wrote, how would you respond to it? If it seems unlikely to be helpful, then find another way to share your views. 
If you find yourself on the receiving end of a hostile or angry email and you need to respond to it, it's important to be assertive, but not aggressive or passive. You can do this by keeping your email brief, focusing on just the facts and information you want to share, keeping it professional and friendly, or at least neutral, and be firm and confident in your position on an issue. Avoid personal attacks or criticism, sarcasm, threats, or making it sound like you are open to discussing or considering something when in fact you aren't. And when focusing on the facts, that means sharing the information you want to share, not pointing out all of the inaccurate or wrong information the other person may have shared. That can be tempting, but it will just keep the conflict escalating. A red flag that the email you are about to send might escalate the conflict is that you have written more than one or two short paragraphs. In general, when dealing with conflict, the longer the email, the more likely it is to escalate things rather than calm them down. Another technique is to use assertive, non-reactive statements. This means being clear about your point of view as well as your feelings and expectations, while not reacting emotionally or saying something that might provoke the other person. Taking this approach will calm things down and make it easier to have a rational conversation. One way to do this is to talk about what you see, what you feel, what you hope, or what you expect. For example, you might say, next time, I hope you can step back and think about how you will respond to your colleagues before you send a long, angry email, or I expect the two of you to be respectful and listen to each other. Another effective method is to use the format when you, I feel, because. For example, when you change your mind about a decision and don't let me know right away, I feel frustrated because I can't do my job effectively. In the role play at the beginning of the webinar, Amanda might have approached me afterward and said, when you talk about how you have a PhD and I don't, I feel hurt and angry because it seems like you don't value what I have to say. This technique is a good way to let the other person know how you are feeling and why you are feeling that way without triggering defensiveness or blaming the other person for your feelings. It can also be effective to use the format, I notice that and I assume that, is that true? For example, in our role play afterward, I might have said to Amanda, I noticed that you didn't have the most recent version of the slides, and I assume that is because you forgot to check your email this morning. Is that right? This is a good way to check out your assumptions. Incorrect assumptions are often a cause of conflict. In this case, maybe Amanda did check her email, but I accidentally sent the previous versions of the slides. Instead of being angry with her, I need to focus on being more organized. But I wouldn't know that if I didn't check out my assumptions. Keep in mind that people differ in how confident they are in their assumptions. If you are someone who usually thinks you're right, you may be unintentionally causing or escalating conflict because you're ask, acting from false assumptions. The key is to check out your assumptions. For those of you who might be in research roles, you can think of them like a hypothesis. Collect some data by asking questions to test whether your hypothesis is true. And just like in research, the data usually tell a slightly different story than what we were expecting. Our assumptions about why someone is doing something are often wrong. Another important tip is asking what versus why questions. Asking what focuses the discussion on behaviors and impact, which is more productive. Asking why often feels like an accusation and puts people on the defensive. For example, if after two of your employees have an argument, you ask, why did you do that? It is likely to sound blaming and accusatory. If instead you ask, what happened back there between the two of you? This is more likely to lead to a productive conversation. If you want to get better at this skill, 
Pay attention over the next week and notice when you ask another person why they did something. Try turning these into what questions and you'll find that you get more information and a better understanding of what actually happened and why. Finally, one other technique for non-reactive statements is to use the word and instead of but. For example, if you say, I know you want to start on this new project, but we need to get our current one done first. It sounds like you disagree with the person's desire to start on the new project. However, if you say, I know you want to start on this new project and we need to get our current project done first, it sounds like you support the person's desire to get started. Substituting and for but is a simple technique that can have a significant impact on how the other person responds to you. Sometimes other people are good at knowing what to say to provoke you. This is called pushing your buttons or taking the bait. You know this is happening when you find yourself wanting to respond aggressively, or you just want to give up and avoid the issue altogether. For example, in our role play at the beginning, one of my hot buttons is when I think I look disorganized in front of other people. When Amanda didn't have the final version of the slides, this immediately made me feel embarrassed and angry. She wasn't doing it intentionally, but then I responded by telling her what to do because I'm the senior director. Well, being told what to do was one of Amanda's hot buttons. So things quickly escalated into name calling. Had we each been more mindful of our hot buttons, we might have been able to recognize that we were pushing each other's buttons and making things worse. It can be helpful to anticipate the specific situations, people, or topics that can quickly trigger anger or frustration, your hot buttons. We all have them. Think about how you might respond in a calm and rational way. It helps to actually rehearse the words you would say. For example, Say you know that in a meeting later today, Matt, a supervisor from another unit, is going to bring up an issue from 10 years ago, as he always does, and that you're going to get really angry, as you always do. Rehearse what you might say when Matt bring this up, brings this up. Maybe also rehearse taking a deep breath before you respond. As a supervisor, you can help others become more aware of their hot buttons and strategize ways of responding more productively. Role playing can feel silly but role-playing difficult situations with someone you trust is a very good way of building more effective self-control skills. As a supervisor, role-playing combined with feedback and coaching is a great way to help others get better at managing conflict. One way to avoid triggering other people's hot buttons is to avoid presenting information or decisions as a crisis that need to be resolved immediately. Give the person time to process the information and time to consider any decisions in other words, give them time to manage their own emotions. Okay, another important step in managing conflict is to build trust. Even if you are starting with little trust or even some hostility, it is important to build whatever trust you can with the others involved. This may not be easy, especially when you're dealing with difficult behavior from another person, but even a little trust can go a long way and you won't likely succeed without it. One of the most important skills that build trust is what is called reflective listening. This involves two steps. First, focus on hearing what the other person is saying in order to understand what they are thinking and how they are feeling. This means giving your full attention to the other person and not what you want to say in response. The second step in reflective listening is to say back to the other person what you hear them saying in your own words. If they don't agree that you've gotten it right, then ask them to help you get it right. The goal is for the other person to agree that you understand what they are trying to communicate. So let's talk about how you do this. First, it is important to use open-ended questions rather than closed questions. 
Closed questions are answered with just a word or two and don't give the other person the chance to explain their thoughts. So for example, did you send an email to her about the decision you made is a closed question. It is answered yes or no. Sure, the person could say more, but by asking a closed question, you've communicated intentionally or not that you aren't interested in hearing more. In contrast, open-ended questions give the person the chance to share more information and explanation. For example, if you ask, what did you say in the email you sent to her about the decision? This communicates that you are interested in hearing the full story and understanding their point of view. So here's a simple exercise you can do to get better at this. Over the next week, notice when you ask closed questions. Practice turning them into open-ended questions. If you do this, you'll find that you have much more helpful and informative conversations. You might even resolve a conflict or two before they become big issues. Another important part of reflective listening is to ask questions and make statements that encourage the person to clarify what they are thinking and how they're feeling. For example, it sounds like you're not sure why he disagreed with you in the meeting. Is that right? Or could you give me an example of that? These are clarifying questions. The goal is to give the person a chance to clarify their perspective. It also helps to let them know you're trying to understand them. For example, it must be really frustrating when she says one thing to you in the meeting and then does something completely different. Or I imagine you're feeling stuck because you have to work with him on this project, but he isn't getting his part done on time. Demonstrating empathy doesn't mean that you agree with the other person's perspective, but it means you understand it. And this is important in building trust. Once you believe you understand what the other person is thinking and feeling, a powerful technique is to summarize and paraphrase what you've heard. For example, so you want his input into the design of your project, but you find his sarcastic comments aggravating. Am I right about that? Or it sounds like the expectations for how the two of you are to work together are unclear. How can I clarify this for you? If the other person disagrees with what you've said, listen carefully to what they say and try again until they agree you've got it right. Remember, they are the expert in what they are trying to say. A common trap is to get hung up on trying to pick apart or analyze their words. You'll know you're doing this when you find yourself trying to tell them what they are saying. To listen effectively, be sure not to interrupt the other person or start sharing your own views until you have shown that you understand what the person is saying. It's also important to avoid giving advice, changing the subject, or judging what the other person is saying. For example, it won't be helpful to say, you should just tell him that you won't put up with this anymore. You're being a pushover. I'm only trying to help. Saying something like this guarantees the other person will not feel heard and understood, and it certainly won't feel like you're trying to help. The key to reflective listening is to focus entirely on trying to understand the other person's point of view. If you are someone who likes to give advice, hold this in check or it will sabotage your listening skills and make it harder to build trust. Reflective listening provides you with an accurate understanding of what someone is thinking and how they are feeling, making it easier for you to reduce interpersonal conflict and address the underlying problem or source of the conflict. It also helps the other person build more self-awareness and possibly gain a new perspective as well as feel heard. Another important part of building trust is letting the others know that the relationships are a priority to you and that you respect and value the people involved. This is called rapport building and it will make, more, make others more likely to be willing to work with you to resolve a conflict. There are three ways you can do this. The first is to talk about the importance of trust, fairness, and the other person's cooperativeness. For example, you might say, 
I appreciate your willingness to sit down and talk about this difficult issue. Or you might say, I know we disagree about this decision, and I really want to figure out how we can restore trust between us. When you tell the other person that you want to build trust, that you value fairness, and that you see how they are trying to be cooperative, even if only a little bit, the other person is likely to reciprocate and see you as genuinely wanting to work things out. The second technique is to talk about the greater good, such as, we share the same goal of fixing this problem, or we both want our department to be successful. Statements about shared goals can help the other person see how cooperating with you and resolving the conflict can help you both. This sets the stage for finding common ground and coming to an agreement that benefits everyone. The third technique is to talk about building the relationship, saying things such as, I want to help you figure this out, or I want you to be successful. Emphasizing that you want to have a supportive, cooperative relationship helps the other person trust you and see you as someone who can help rather than as an adversary or a competitor. These simple techniques create more cooperativeness in other people and can pave the way for finding common ground. One of the reasons many disagreements can feel so difficult is that they often feel like a competition, like someone will win and someone will lose. Your gain is my loss. You can tell when someone sees disagreement as a competition. They won't want to share information with you. They won't try to understand what you need or what you want. They will make a big deal out of differences in your goals and interests rather than talking about what you have in common. And they will try to get what they want at your expense. For most of us, this is actually how we experience a lot of disagreement and conflict. The trouble is this is often wrong. Usually there are solutions to a conflict that do not require one side to win and the other to lose. Instead, solutions usually exist that allow everyone to get something they need. There are a set of specific skills that will help you identify win-win solutions. Before looking for solutions, you need to define the problem in a way that is mutually acceptable. Ask questions and share information about how each person sees the problem, the goals, and obstacles to reaching the goals. For example, you might say, what do you see as the real issue here? Or what do you think is getting in the way of solving this problem? Once you agree on the problem, discuss each person's interests, needs, and priorities. For example, it sounds like timing is a big issue for you. What would you like the timing to be? Or cost is a very important issue for me. I need to be sure there's not an increase over last year. The goal is to create a mutual understanding of what each person needs. As you unpack the conflict, it is incredibly helpful to restate and summarize what each side is saying until you all agree that you have accurately described each side's priorities. This is a very important and very powerful technique. In fact, the single most helpful skill in this entire webinar would probably be restating and summarizing what each side is saying until you all agree that you have accurately described each side's priorities. Once you know the interests, needs, and priorities of everyone involved, you have what you need to start looking for an agreement that works for everyone. There are a number of techniques that will help you find that agreement. First, it always helps to talk about common goals and interests. What does everyone agree on already? For example, we all want to figure out how to come up with the money and staffing to get this project done, or we are all interested in solving this problem once and for all. Right away, rule out any options that participants agree are unworkable. A common mistake is to keep trying to convince the other person of something they see as off the table and simply not an option. The other person will respond by defending their positions even more strongly. A big part of getting an agreement is finding trade-offs that benefit everyone in some way. 
What do you each have that the other wants? What do you both have that you can trade? What are you comfortable giving away? To do this, you'll need more than one issue. So if you find yourself in a conflict over a single issue for which you and the other person have opposite preferences, it can be helpful to find additional issues to include. This creates the possibility for trade-offs. For example, you might offer to give the other person what they want on one issue if they give you what you want on another issue. Say another supervisor is asking for some time from your team to work on a big project. You might agree to this if they agree to support you in extending the timeline on another project so you have time to get it all done. You are trading off your team's time for an extended deadline on, on another project, which makes the agreement workable for everyone. As you identify possible options for an agreement, be sure to summarize them so you're all on the same page. It's usually a good idea to keep decisions on individual issues tentative until a final proposal is complete. Also, getting everyone's commitment to a final agreement is an important part of making sure there's follow through. Getting commitment in writing, such as by including it in a meeting minutes or in an email can be very effective. As you try these techniques to help you manage a conflict, don't forget to consider the sources of the conflict, task, process, relationship, and status. For example, if two people are frustrated and angry with each other and disagree about how to get their work done, you'll need to help them calm down and manage their emotions before they are able to have a productive conversation and find common ground on how to get their work done. The conflict management skills we just reviewed will serve you well in dealing with the conflicts you face in your day-to-day -day work. And keep in mind that as a supervisor, you will also be coaching others in how to use these skills. The more comfortable you are using these skills and the more experience you have with them, the more you'll be able to, be able to coach others to manage conflict effectively. For help with feedback and coaching skills, you can take a look at module one in the supervisory development course. All right, so now I'm gonna turn it back over to Amanda, who's gonna wrap up the webinar. Thank you, Brandon. Wow, that was a lot of information and there aren't any questions at the moment. Um, everyone was listening so well, so we definitely appreciate that. And we actually have about 450 people listening. So that's wonderful that we have such a strong interest in this content. So I just wanna remind everyone that we have quick guides for all the skills that Brandon just told you about and examples so that you can use them for your reference. You can also watch this webinar at any time. You'll have a recording. So speaking of the module itself, the Managing Conflict content is now available on supervising.umn.edu. So you can go check it out. We're also gonna do our final Q&A section. Oh, we got a question about uh, getting the PowerPoint. Um, we will be posting uh, a recording of this webinar uh, the, that'll be available uh, shortly, I think by Friday. Um, we'll send that out actually in an email um, and it'll be posted to the site. Uh, so you can, uh, you'll get all of that, including our you know, what we said, uh, as well as the, the video of the, the slides. Um, I do wanna just say a couple of things. So the polls were pretty interesting. 40% uh, said that managing emotions uh, was kind of the, the key thing that you're, you're struggling with. And that, that's true, really true for most people when it comes to conflict. Uh, when we give in to anger and frustration is usually when things derail and, and then we find ourselves escalating and uh, the situation's getting worse. And you know, the techniques that we shared in this webinar are, are pretty uh, kind of foundational for that. They're, they're not super complicated, but they can be really 
hard to do because they get at how we, you know, overriding how we naturally want to respond in a situation. And so I just can't emphasize enough how important and effective it is to role play, to practice, to mentally rehearse um, these skills. Uh, it can feel really ridiculous doing that. Um, as someone who's done that a lot, it really does. But it's really effective because then when you find yourself in the situation, you've already, even though it was sort of simulated, you've already handled it. Uh, in a way that's more effective. So I really would encourage people uh, to, to practice, you know, for supervisors, you know, have have your supervisees talk to you about some of the, the people they struggle with the most in terms of conflict or the situations or issues and actually role play it and, and coach them and help them think it through. That is one of the most helpful things, you know, that you could do as a supervisor for that. Uh, the other thing I want to address is process conflict came up as the, the most common recent example of conflict. 40% of you said that. And, you know, there's lots of types of process conflict, but one that, so our, our team does a lot of uh, development with leadership teams and we do a lot of consultation. Uh, and one of the things we see a lot is around decision making. And we see a lot of times there's conflict around people um, not necessarily agreeing on or being clear on what everybody's role is in making a decision. And so just simply having that conversation about, okay, who actually gets a veto on this decision? Who just gets informed that the decision is made? Who gets input into the decision? Who makes the decision? Clarifying some of those roles or at least identifying where you disagree about those can be really helpful. I've seen so many people get really angry and frustrated because a decision was made that they felt they should have had input into and they weren't they weren't uh, consulted on it. And so kind of upfront, having those conversations can be really, really helpful. All right, now the questions are coming in. So thank you, everybody. So we have a question about how do you get someone who will come to you as a manager with an interpersonal conflict but is unwilling to address the conflict directly with the other person? And, you know, role play here too. So that could be a very effective exercise as Brandon was just saying, and if the person is too shy or unwilling to address the conflict directly, which unfortunately we find a lot here in Minnesota with you know the whole passive aggressive thing, but that can be very helpful to that person to get them comfortable with the messaging and how they wanna convey what the issue is to the other person. So I think you're, you're definitely on the right track with asking about the role play. There's another question here that's a really good one because I see this all the time. Um, it's what about triangulation? Uh, it says we have a person who never brings issues to their supervisor. They try to resolve using a colleague of their supervisor. How do you manage the person going to another source? This is so common uh, and is really problematic as, as the person asking the question I'm sure knows. Um, this, you know, first of all, this, this can be a tough situation, but where, where I've seen it be effective is, um, is going, you need to really kind of do two things. One is go to your colleague and have a conversation with your colleague about how this dynamic is undermining your ability to be an effective supervisor. Um, that can be a really difficult conversation depending on who that person is and your relationship with them. Um, I've seen some examples, uh, for example, where you know one person is a faculty member, one is not a faculty member, and that creates a power dynamic that can be kind of tricky. Um, but so that's kind of the first piece is, is really helping that colleague who's or part of that triangulation to understand that when they try to help that person, they're actually making things worse um, and really seeing if you can get their support 
for maybe listening to the person when they complain, but then having them come back to you to have a conversation about what to do about it. And then the other thing is having that conversation with the, the supervisee about uh, you know the expectation that if they have concerns, if they have questions, if there's things that they need help with, that they need to bring them to you first and have that conversation with you first and identify what is it that maybe makes them hesitant to do that? Are there things that you know they're afraid of? Or maybe it's just simply that when they go to that other person, that other person is very sympathetic. And so then it's a, an issue of kind of helping your colleague understand that they're not being helpful for you. It, it, so those are the, the things that, that, that I've seen be really effective, um, not that that's necessarily an easy thing to do. There's another question about speaking to when a supervisor should intervene in a conflict, or when should two parties be encouraged to work it out? And then when should the supervisor mediate? So you definitely as a supervisor wanna get involved when the conflict is interrupting you or your team's work and it's disruptive and counterproductive. So obviously if the work's not getting done, that's a huge issue and that would be number one when to intervene. And then also if your direct reports behavior is inconsistent with the, the expectations that you've set for them for how they're to get their work done. So those would be the three key things about when to know when to get involved. And then as far as mediating or help or when the other people should be working it out themselves, that's when you can come in and and really practice your coaching skills. And so I would invite you to look back to module one where we have the coaching information. And um, the information I just used to answer this question is on a quick guide, knowing when to get involved. So if you're out in the module right now, you, you should be able to see all these quick guides. So here's a question um, that uh, kind of about styles. So uh, direct versus indirect or expressive versus refer re reserved uh, styles. And, you know, one of the things as a supervisor that's really important is, is to be mindful of and thinking about not only your style, um, not only how you handle conflict, but, you know, your, your personality and, um, you know, how do you uh, express yourself? Are you introverted, extroverted, etc.? But, you know, how, what are the styles and preferences of the people uh, that report to you on your team? And where I've seen this just from a practical perspective, uh, be a challenge is when you have um, people reporting to you who are particularly reserved, introverted, quiet, um, especially if you happen to be someone who's very extroverted and gregarious and outspoken, um, you're going to want to really you know, be thinking about how do you um, make sure that you're creating an environment where people who are quiet and reserved and, and maybe even a little shy to speak up can feel comfortable doing that. Um, and a lot of that speaks to self-awareness. Um, and, and maybe even to managing your emotions. You know, we talked about it here in the context of managing anger and frustration, but you could also apply it to being really excited and enthusiastic. Sometimes people can find that sort of overwhelming. And so um, if you're someone who's just very uh, expressive and assertive, um, that that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if you're a supervisor, just being aware of, you know, toning it down a bit when it may be making it uncomfortable for other people to speak up, particularly those who report to you. So that's all the time we have today. Please use this extra time to explore the Managing Conflict module. And thank you so much for attending. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Supervisory Development Course podcast. Please explore the Managing Conflict resources on the supervising.umn.edu site. There, you'll find videos, guides, and more to help you assess conflict sources, recognize the benefits of conflict, and also build your conflict management skills. 
The Supervisory Development Course podcast is created by Leadership and Talent Development within the Office of Human Resources at the University of Minnesota. If you have questions or would like to reach out, please email us at ltd at umn.edu.